here's the site that's most instructive. It's the Wax Museum. These figures look so lifelike and so real. Here's Napoleon Bonaparte. Of course you've heard of him. Hello there, Nap. How do you feel? And tell me how your old Hello, friends, Romans, countrymen. Lend us your ears so we can talk to you about Marion Davies today. Welcome to the B-side for the film stage. Here we talk about movie stars, not the movies that made them famous or kept them famous, but the movies that their rich boyfriends produced and they made in between. Uh, I am Dan Mecca. As always, I'm with Connor O'Donnell. Connor, how are you doing? I am great, Dan. Um, And today we're talking about Mary Davies, as I said. Uh, You may know the name recently because of a little movie called Mank, which is the David Fincher film currently available on Netflix, came out in December, getting a decent amount of attention as Oscar season has been elongated into April and we're still getting Oscar movies um, in 2021. You know, for sure we'll hear about Mank in some capacity and probably the most the most notable capacity we will hear about it is Amanda Seyfried's performance at playing Marion Davies in the film Mank, which is about Herman J. Mankiewicz, who co-wrote the film Citizen Kane. Ever heard of it? I literally just rewatched it today. Holds up, guys. Strong picture. Citizen (laughs) Kane. Check it out on HBO Max. Today, we are joined, thankfully, by someone smarter than us, which I think is important. Um, (laughs) Emily Emily Kubankanik, freelance writer, uh, also a library and archive grad student who does great work for film school rejects, among other uh, places. But um, Emily, you were on Cinephile Game Night yes. for for film school rejects, right? It was like you yeah. and like Bri- was it Brianna? Was yeah, it like- Brianna, Luke, Luke and Hicks. Beth. And you yeah. know what I realized? Luke Hicks, who's like our good friend. Is has not been on the show. Yeah, oh we'll have goodness. to we'll have to remedy that. <laughs> like, you we, got like, it, oh, yeah. I was like, I was like, oh, I'm so excited to have Emily on. Like, because we briefly before we went live on that day, if I recall, we briefly were like, oh, I live in Pittsburgh. You live in Pittsburgh. Um, Connor's in New York. Who cares about Connor? And we were like, <laughs> but we were like, oh, old movies. You love old movies. We want to do more old move older movie stars on our podcast you know, we'll let you know, right? Mm-hmm. That would be great. And so I think after Mank, we were like, Mary Davies, like this is, if there was ever a moment to talk about this kind it of starlet be, of the 20s. has to be the oldest actor we've Oh, covered, right? I mean, I mean yeah, because yeah. we've done Catherine Hepburn. Mm-hmm. Catherine Hepburn's close. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, she's she's not 30s, is when she's kind of, yeah. you know, stage door and, and whatever. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Bogart. we talk, Bogie's, 30s right yeah. i mean he's mm-hmm. in shit and then it's you know 40s is when he's popping and then um and then who do we just do we, we well, just did, we did one an more. episode on sort of on hitchcock but you know oh, sure but not early mm. yeah yeah go we, back as far i guess you could say the 20s emily right? we're doing mm-hmm. these emily we're doing these a uh, new episode called the final frame is what we're calling it and it's like great directors last films So we talked about Hitchcock. It just came out like as we're recording, like a few days ago. Uh, Mm. The Family Plot, his last movie, which is interesting. Uh, Yeah, that's I think partly why we we were like, oh, it fits with our our buddy Nate had the idea, and it like fits with our thing because a lot of a lot of great directors' last movies, people kind of are like 
they are not always the best ones, right? Like people aren't like the dead John Huston. You got to see it. You know, it's <laughs> mm-hmm. like, no, it's a bad movie, but people kind of don't. But anyway, so Emily, so tell me, oh no, I want to shout a couple things out first. Beyond the Classics is a like a biweekly column you do for, for Film School Rejects. And I yeah. just wanted, because I was like rereading, looking at stuff, a couple of shout outs I just wanted to give, right? So you do a great, uh, Christmas in July and Preston Sturgis's overlooked dream project, which I knew nothing about. So like, th- like that's, I think why I love the little, the column, because it's like, you know, it's, you're doing stuff that's apropos to the reason we started this podcast, which is like, mm-hmm. I didn't know about Christmas in July. It happened on fifth Avenue, the holiday movie that Frank, Frank Canberra passed up, right? Like just shit that like, so if you go on film school rejects, if you, you know, look for the tag beyond the classics or just Emily's name, you'll find this stuff. And then another kind of tangential thing, which I just loved was, um, I think you did with our, our buddy Anna Swanson, who I think has been on the film yeah. show, get to know Cary Grant with these 11 essential movies, which that was, there was a couple in there. I didn't know. I'll be honest. I hate really? to say it. Yeah. I'll give you the two. The first one, merrily we go to hell and um which and then um topper i guess i knew but i've never seen and i was oh, it's like so much fun yeah and so um anyway awesome stuff thank you for thank being you. on <laughs> uh and all right so marion davies she was an actress uh who became hugely popular in the 20s basically retired in 37, right? It's a pretty quick, as as movie careers go, it's a pretty quick run. Obviously, the way that female actresses were treated back in the day, even more so than they are now, n- not altogether surprising in terms of how, you know, the ageism of everything, but still, it's very like, it's, it's a flash in the pan in a lot of respects. Um, she's very famous for having a extramarital affair with William Randolph Hearst, who is the newspaper magnate, among many other things. You probably know William Randolph Hearst probably now most as the guy who Citizen Kane is based on, even though if you dig into it, Orson Welles and Herman Mankiewicz went out of the way to kind of say like, no, but when push comes to shove, a lot of the stuff in Kane is based on Randolph Hearst, including to a degree, Susan Alexander, who's a character in Kane, who is his second wife in the movie, who bears a a striking similarity to what the public thought of Marion Davies, which we can get into. So that's all kind of easy, quick backdrop to this. And I think, you know, we focus on three or four movies when we do these. The three we're going to talk about today are um, When Knighthood Was in Flower from 1922, The Red Mill from 1927, and Cain and Mabel, her second to last movie in 1936. I will simp- I will say I did watch Ever Since Eve from 1937, and I can say, glad we're not covering that one. That one <laughs> is not a strong picture. Let's just move right along. But... Um, Emily, let's start with you. Marion Davies, where, what did you know of her? What did you seen of hers? I guess before Mank, before we're recording, what was that kind of for you? Um, I know I listened to, you must remember this religiously. And so I remember when she had a season first on the MGM stories and she did kind of like a crash course on Marion Davies in Hearst. Um, but, and then she did, uh, kind of going through Kenneth Anger's 
Hollywood Babylon. And so I learned about her life more before I actually had watched her movies. Um, but I had seen, I think maybe within the past couple of years, Blondie at the Follies is one of my favorite ones. And one um, of her, one of her bigger ones, like that was, that one's big enough that I feel like I was like, let's that's yeah. With, with the old, when we do these old episodes, the B side thing is harder because not everything's available, mm -hmm. but even Blondie of the Follies, like I was like, eh, it's too big. You know what I mean? Cause that yeah. was like the one that was a huge hit for her. But anyway, sorry, keep going. No. Yeah. That and show people is really big and, and, um, going Hollywood with Bing Crosby. And so I think I had seen like her most famous ones first. Um, but I didn't get a ton of like a huge sense of her silent stuff. So I was really excited to do this one and see ones that I had never even heard of um, most for the most part. So, yeah, the only one, the only one or two that I had seen was Beauty's Worth, which just was like a silent one that on a lot on a lark couple years ago i just watched just because it was on i follow like youtube channels that have like bad rips of silent movies and i every once in a while I'll just i'll watch it for, yeah you know you know how it goes you know mm -hmm. us cool kids we just put on this <laughs> youtube silent movies uh, on a saturday night rock and roll and um and i think blondie of the follies in school you know like a long time ago hmm. so i don't even really like have it marked in my letterbox because i don't remember it too well but funny thing about show people so in doing research about this, I just want to mention, I did listen to most of um, Fred Lawrence Giles' biography about Mary Davies um, from the 70s. One thing I did not know, among many things I didn't know, obviously listening to the biography, is show people she's like doing a rip She's like calling out Gloria Swanson in that movie, mm -hmm. which I didn't know. That's like a whole – and the whole world, like the Hearst – like the Hearst, um, Davies, San Simeon, like world, and like Swanson was was like screwing Joe Kennedy, and like <laughs> they didn't, and they didn't like Swanson, and mm -hmm. like they make a movie to make fun of Swanson. It's just like what? And there's like a million things like that. And mm -hmm. um, we, I'll just tell you straight up, we will not have enough time to go into all this shit. Like me and Connor were talking before we were recording. Like when you get into that relationship, they 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 are cross-sectionally involved with like every great Hollywood scandal mm -hmm. like that ultimately led to the Hayes Code, right? Where, you know, like Olive Thomas, Fatty Arbuckle, which we'll talk about the Red Mill. He mm -hmm. directed that under a pseudonym. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what's her name? Amy, the the uh, evangelical yeah, preacher who got kidnapped and then came back and then died of a barbiturate overdose. She's played a version of hers played by Tatiana Maslany in that show, Perry Mason that's on HBO max. Oh, I haven't seen it. I've like, never heard that. All this shit is like, if you read about this couple, juicy, and of course, juicy like, is the word that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. And, and Connor, you, I'll, I want you to talk about your kind of, because like, you know, Hearst is one of the richest people in the world. Obviously he is literally somebody who incited a war along with Pulitzer in the late 1800s, the Spanish-American War, um, to get more viewers, to get more people to buy his papers, right? Like, so this is a dude who, you know, it, it was a, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, a truly evil guy. And if you see Mank, that's one of the portraits of him. Charles Dance plays him. And then Edward Herman plays him in um, in The Cat's Meow, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. And anyway, Connor, 
Mary Davies, where are you at with her before this? So the only movie of hers I had actually seen, and it wasn't it wasn't because of her, was um, a movie called Polly of the Circus, which um, right. I don't know if it was her first collaboration with Clark Gable, but it 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 comes before Cain and Mabel, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about. Um, he also doesn't have a mustache in that, which is kind of funny, but, um, which is just, it's just weird to see him without a mustache, but, um, that's a, I rewatched that movie last night actually. And it's, it's a pretty good one. It's a little more dry and maybe a little less fun than something like Kane and Mabel, but that was the only movie of hers I had actually seen. And then just my knowledge of her really was only through Citizen Kane and, and the kind of, and Cat's Meow, like just the reputation because of that. Um, and so I admittedly like didn't really start even my own personal reappraisal until I watched Mank, frankly, and was just like, oh, this is like interesting. And then I kind of, you know, which I guess good, good on David Fincher in that regard seems to be at least working on on this viewer. But, um, (laughs) but, um, yeah, so this just even researching all this was super fascinating to me because, uh, kind of. Uh, in the spirit of of the Amanda Seyfried performance in Mank, kind of t- taking it back is kind of, has been sort of fun in 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 doing all this research. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess we can we can dive into it. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to say before we jumped into the movies, um, and there's plenty to talk about, so we'll be quick. Mank. Okay, so Mank was on my top ten of the year. I think it was in. The film stage is top fifty. I I want to say probably between ten and twenty. I I have to I should look that up, but it, it's in there. And I know it's gotten you know I don't know. I think p- more positive generally, but mixed in the world of film Twitter, I guess to some degree. And Emily, what do you? What, I feel like you like Mank. What is your Mank thoughts? What are your I Mank like- thoughts? I liked it. I enjoyed it. I mean, I feel like it was made for someone like me. But I I think I don't like the kind of uh, criticism that a lot of critics are saying that this is only made for uh, film in like cinephiles and like no regular person right. will ever think this is interesting. I think that's kind of crap. Um, I know that it may not interest a lot of people, but I think it, it does well with that time period to make it interesting to people who wouldn't normally look or something like that and it's david fincher i don't know like how he could make something boring a hundred percent yeah i totally agree with you. And, it, and it's funny actually it you you just saying that reminded me you wrote a piece as well which i reread today which is i'm gonna gonna get the title wrong but it was about you're basically responding this idea of like young people like messing up old things right what mm-hmm. was it what was it you give us a brief that synopsis. was Something I was actually only an intern at Film School Reject, but the um, New York Post I put out like a <laughs> listener, you can't see it, but, but but Emily just there's an eye roll, an amazing eye roll immediately after New York Post. A Marion Mary Davies esque uh, <laughs> facial relax. Sorry, go go on. <laughs> it's okay. Um, but they had put something out that was like less than fifty percent, or like over fifty percent of young people say that they don't like old movies and they would never watch them. And right, there's right, like, right. it was just a bunch of crap. And so, you know, I was only, I think 
20 at the time and I have loved them and I knew a ton of people who loved them. And I think at that I wrote a little bit more about how this was before Filmstruck, before Criterion Channel. TCM was really the only place to get a lot of it and for people to find them. Netflix has a horrible old movie section that used to, I think when it like first began, it had a lot of silent films, but they went away. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I just kind of talked about how, I don't know, people need to kind of seek them out and that's hard to make people do. They, they want it to come to them. Yeah. You were basically saying like, you can say that young people aren't doing this, but they don't have a lot of options, which I think is mm-hmm. definitely, you're right. I think even as we speak now, there are with criteria channel with other things, you, you, there are more options, perhaps you, you, uh, in, in between when you wrote that and now, but mm-hmm. it's still a problem, obviously. And Netflix, yeah. of course, being, you know, I think early on when it was just like they'll 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 license anything and put it up there just to have content. But now mm-hmm. they're, they're obviously generating so much of their own. It's a different ball game. But anyway, and I know Connor agrees with me on this. So yeah, in, in ter- I, we in, should just say ahead. just quickly on that note, like you know, if you, I'm sure if you listen to this podcast or the Film Stage Show. You're probably someone who already enjoys old movies, enjoys movies in general. Sure. But e- even if you don't, I mean, it's the type of thing I would say not unlike with maybe international or foreign films. It's this thing of if you if you if it's something that's not particularly your bag, if you can just get over the hump of like exposing well, like yourself to this bon stuff. Bong Joon-ho says, no, no, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's, yeah. And it's a totally apt point. Like if you can get yeah. past the needing to read subtitles, right? And I would say this is the same with Silent. Or the black and white, yeah, or whatever, black and you know, white, the, silent yeah, film, yeah. whatever. If you can just get over whatever that barrier is for you, it is there is just a whole world of possibility, and it's wonderful and fascinating. And I think as we dive into these, I felt that way watching all of these movies, right? Particularly mm-hmm. the, the first two, When Nighthood Was in Flower and The Red Mill. Like, I don't actively con- consume silent cinema necessarily i do enjoy it from time to time but i feel like even my own personal exposure to it is really just kind of what you would consider the the greats right the chaplains and the keatons and and whatever um and uh and so yeah even you know you just you learn to appreciate things in a totally different way than you might you know with with more standard well, and even standard and you'll fare. even and you and you get like I feel like we mentioned this on one of the cinephile game nights. Like there's a documentary a year ago, two years ago, Be Natural about Alice Guy Blachet, which is like the fact that that documentary exists and talks about Alice Guy Blachet, who like people is forgotten and like mm-hmm. obviously now some of her movies are being um, you know recovered and restored and like something like Falling Leaves. I watched you know I watched that on YouTube. It's 11 minutes or something. It's like the seventh best movie i've ever seen i was like <laughs> i was like oh this is perfect it was like just like sitting she like made this movie like 110 years ago and it's like m- more emotionally like prescient and affecting than i don't know 99 percent of you know movies i've ever seen so it's just like you see you see that doc it makes you watch one 11 minute film that's that that takes you on your on your on your way. Now, just so I, let me just say my mank thing, and we'll quickly talk. We'll <laughs> jump into knighthood here. So, Seyfried's wonderful in it. Obviously, is Mary Davis. She mm-hmm. is the highlight, in my opinion. I think we can all agree on that. The movie as a whole, I also like a lot. There are, of course, issues, I guess, but 
For me, this is Fincher kind of taking the piss out of Hollywood a bit, right? Which I feel like has been undercovered. Like, so much has been made about him making Herman Mankiewicz the sympathetic hero. But I feel like that's not really true. When I watch the movie, it doesn't seem really to be the case, right? Mankiewicz is certainly the protagonist of the movie. Mm -hmm. But I think Fincher's using him as a conduit to examine the hypocrisies that define Hollywood, right? Which is to say, mm -hmm. like, this is a guy, All Gary Oldman is portraying a guy who's, you know, talented person, smartest guy in the room, at least he thinks he is, who has these <laughs> progressive political ideals, but refuses to take any platform or activism to do anything about it. And instead plays the provocateur while drunk all the time mm -hmm. in the room with his more conservative bosses who just treat him like, the clown and he knows that and his self-hatred allows for this cyclical nature that kind of comes to a head if you've seen mank in the night of the election the 1934 uh, california governor election with upton sinclair losing who's the more progressive pick and like all of that kind of gets ignored in favor of criticizing like oh they talk about the wolfman or whatever yeah. like or <laughs> two to ten years earlier like i don't care what do mm -hmm. i give yeah. a shit if when they talk about the like you know whatever like frankenstein whatever it is mm -hmm. and it's just and then the thing I like about Seyfried is she plays Davies, if you, who, if you read about it, it feels very honest to who you, who Davies was, right? Mm -hmm. She was someone who had a lot of self-doubt. She's from Brooklyn. She kind of didn't love saying that, but she sounded like she was from Brooklyn. <laughs> she was dating a dude who was married 34 years her senior. She was a chorus girl, briefly was in the Ziegfeld Follies. Basically, Hearst was like a stalker who basically uh pulled a howard hughes on her and mm -hmm. like made a whole audition for no re a modeling gig for no reason other than to meet her totally creeped her out she eventually acquiesced they date forever she really falls in love with them you know has other affairs i mean he was a married guy whatever right there's a whole chaplain thing that we'll talk about with the cats meow to a degree but like she plays Seyfried Cy Cy plays Davies as someone who is fully aware, aware of who she is. And mm -hmm. it's not about self hate as much as about self doubt. And like this idea of she knows she's with one of the richest people in the world. She knows the guy can be evil, but she loves him anyway. She's aware that San Simeon is this ridiculous place with the zoo and the whole thing, but she was a good person. She like, she was charitable when she could be. Wow dating the guy who incited a totally useless war you know you know 30 years before so i just feel like the movie has all that stuff and people are just like now oh, you know it just fits you're making his dad's it, script and netflix will make anything and i'm like okay buddy like that just feels and, anyway and to to emily's point about like that you know this this criticism that only cinephiles are people who could appreciate this i think I, I I agree with because I not that criticism, but your point, Emily, that it's kind of mm. you know, that it's bullshit because like everything you just described, Dan, is all the stuff about the movie that anybody who who likes movies could could chew on and, and like appreciate. And and so it's well, and just even like it's a, the, the, yeah. and even like Charles dance at the end of that movie, the dance, the monkey thing. Right. That is the best scene ever, because it's like Hearst is just like, hey, look, Mank, you know that like. We just like laughing at you, right? Like you're really smart, but like nobody actually cares about anything you're saying. You know, like like we like hearing you 
and or like specifically Hearst is like I one like hearing you and like but you know now you've gone too far and so that's a problem now right and you just get it's just so fascinating and um anyway so that's all I have to say about that but um okay when knighthood was in flower pretty good movie uh the most expensive movie ever made when it came out was produced by Cosmopolitan Pictures, which was Hearst's company, mm-hmm. with a distribution deal with Paramount. Uh, was a big hit. It introduces Marion Davies to the world. She's playing Mary Tudor. And it's like her intro scene is pretty famous in the world of cinema, right? It's like she's coming down the river in the boat, and it's like pretty iconic, right? And seeing mm-hmm. it um well she even was, in this she was already known but this certainly was like right this was the world finally acknowledging her as like a, yeah. mo- a movie An actress st- yeah yeah and, and a movie yeah. star right we should actually say too actually to your point her first movie because this is kind of interesting right her first movie which was a flop she did write though runaway romany um, which is a, a lost film is what Wikipedia tells me, which is a mm. shame. She wrote it for herself and got her brother-in-law, George Letterer, to, to direct, direct it. it. And yeah. obviously it was a cosmopolitan movie, but that's just like crazy. That and, like in night in like 19, what, 1917. And you know, she's like 20, 19, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Connor, you're right. She's already made a few movies at this point. This is her first big smash. And yeah. um only in three years after this, basically cosmopolitan will move from the east coast to the west coast because the studio burns down which you know really common back then you know just mm-hmm. nitrate edison nitrate baby uh dawson city <laughs> dawson city frozen time shout out um but anyway so what do we think about when nighthood was in flower who i'll start connor connor you, you start what do you think yeah no i i basically liked it um you know just to give you a quick quick uh primer on the 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 plot here it's basically about the romance between mary tudor and charles brandon all right basically mary you know they fall in love mary tudor is then sort of promised off to uh louis the 12th yeah and the casting of that guy by the way perfect perfect just perfect <laughs> oldest most disgusting uh, yeah. guy like, uh, he and, died probably died the day after they wrapped he just was like yeah and we should say his uh his heir is uh, in this movie is william powell and it's kind of mm-hmm. it's kind of fun to see him for like two seconds uh, it is um, i know for like a scene yeah yeah mm-hmm. and um he gets a, he gets a title card which i love he gets yeah, like an yeah, intro yeah. card and he like yeah. never shows back up yeah um <laughs> we should also say the titles with all of these movies the opening titles of all these movies it is you know you can you can feel the criticism of critics at the time with the Hearst and Davies of it all because Mary and Davies name is just in bold every single time you know and it's it's just even though I I was reading old reviews of this movie uh, this was a it was a hit people loved it yeah yeah it was and you uh, you kind of mentioned in our in our Twitter chat Dan that like this it was like the Titanic of its time it was like the most expensive movie ever made it was a massive hit I believe at Mm -hmm. the time it was made for 1.5 million dollars which a lot right for adjusted for inflation that's uh, that's 7 trillion dollars that's massive Jesus Jesus Christ I'm just just kidding just kidding but (laughs) I'm gonna gonna, gonna actually find out how much it is while you talk okay so basically that's the general crux of the the plot it's essentially a star-crossed romance as it were 
Um, and I, Davies is so good in this movie. Um, it, I mean, in all of these movies, and it's it's a weird thing to think that her reputation for a time was tarnished by something like Kane, Citizen Kane, because like mm-hmm. to actually watch these movies, it just feels like you know you you would think you're taking crazy pills because you're just like yeah I don't know she's great like it she's got it all you know and what I think is the most interesting thing about this movie is that you know if you read about it um if you listen to some of the things like Emily mentioned like the uh the you must remember this episode on Hearst and Davies and Kane is a really really good crash course uh in this whole relationship and career but um he was very protective of her image, right? He didn't want people laughing at her. He didn't necessarily love the comedy that she could do, which she was very good at. Well, and it's, it's, it's such a detriment to her early career. Yeah, no, like, and, and I think this movie's an interesting example because it feels like her breaking through this box that Hearst is putting her in, right? Because he wants yeah. her to be this chaste, virginal, leading woman, and and she finds these moments uh, to kind of break through and and be Marion Davies, right? Which is which I think is really wonderful. There's this great scene, uh, this early on in the movie where she's being introduced to a number of suitors. She's already sort of crossed eyes with Charles Brandon. They love at first sight type thing, uh, but almost immediately after that, she's sitting with her bro- brother Henry VIII, uh, and. All of these suitors are coming and the and uh, a, a representative for the king of Spain comes up and he, you know, he g- g- gives uh, he gives Mary a portrait of the king and whatever. And she looks at it and then she looks at the guy and he kind of peeks at her and she gives this wonderful tongue sticking out like she just mugs mm-hmm. to the camera. And it's so good. And I I legit guffawed out loud when I, <laughs> when I saw it. Um, and then there's a scene later in the movie after she's been promised to Louis um, where she is in bed and she's sort of pretending to be fully naked underneath the covers. And it's this oh, like, yeah, scandalous scene. Uh, scene, you know, as as Henry's trying to get her, get her out of bed. But she's like, OK, I'll get out of bed. And then it's like, no. Right. And it's <laughs> she's just great. She like dangles her foot and wiggles her toes and mugs at the camera. And I it's that kind of stuff that I really appreciated. You also get to see a little bit of, um, you know, she was famous for double roles in her movies and having a lot of fun with that. There's a moment, uh, sort of in the middle of the movie where she runs away with Charles Brandon and she pretends to be a, a man to do it. Um, so that ensue a uh, hilarity ensues. And that's that. my favorite, that sequence where the, that whole long sword fight happens in the tavern it's like absolute, or wherever it is. Absolute yeah. chaos. That's yeah. uh, without a doubt. My favorite part of the movie where I just was like, mm-hmm. wow, the just scope of this choreography. And, but Emily, what did you think of, of knighthood? I liked it a lot. Um, I, going off of that like i couldn't believe how exciting it got like towards the end a lot of people think that i don't know especially like period drama sometimes can be like lagging and stuff but it ended up like really getting exciting especially with the swords and and you know seeing her dressed as a man she made great comedy with that um and yeah it was just a joy i think i was listening i was watching a documentary that was about her and people had said that the costumes took away from her performance but I think she like shines in it and she feels like the perfect person for it it's silly 
a little bit, but also she can be serious and emotional at the same time. So I don't know. I feel like it does, it shows off how maybe Hearst was trying to build an image of like, like a virginal woman who is uh, classy, whatever. Um, but she kind of breaks through that in that she, he didn't want her to do comedy, but she does it so well in this, even in the bits yeah. that there are, like no one can really forget that. Um, so right. I really liked it. Yeah. And I think it's, it, yeah, I liked it as well. Um, and it's, and it's, so what's funny about, yeah, Hurston Davies, right? Like Davies as a socialite was very flirtatious mm-hmm. and Hurst was fine with that to a degree because I think he felt she needed to do that because he was so much older and he always felt inadequate. I mean, sexually and like actually, and he was kind of sickly mm-hmm. early on in their relationship because he was already so old. Right. I mean, he's 34 years older than her. So she was very, for the time, you know, she kind of becomes an icon and I, and I feel like an idiot too. Cause in my head, you know, I always think of Jean Harlow, but what's so funny about that is like, she didn't even become famous really in hell's angels. And, and we're already in the depression, right? I'm always mm-hmm. like, Oh yeah. Jean Harlow, the, the, the flapper. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, not really. It's no. like Olive Thomas. It's like, yeah. the, you know, it's uh it's, it's, I mean, more than most, more than most people, it's Marion Davies. It's, um, it's, um, uh, Joan Norma Crawford's Sheer. pretty Joan, good. In yeah, Norma Shear a little bit, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so well, don't anyway. say Norma Shear on this episode. <laughs> I know it's, I know, it's a I sore know. subject for, uh, know, for these people. But um, but so um, anyway, it's an interesting point, Emily, you make because yeah, like then on screen though, he's like, no, she has to come across as this pure person, mm-hmm. and then of course she'll have she breaks that and but it it infects his whole deal the whole time up until marie antoinette which is in Mm -hmm. the 30s which that's right before cain and mabel that that dispute ends the relationship with uh louis b mayer Mm -hmm. which happens around 1925 right after this movie basically because Mayer refuses to cast her as Marie Antoinette and instead casts Norma Shearer, right? Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's what you're saying. And yeah. Which so, is a funny yeah. thing to think about because I, and it's it's this weird, I my brain got in this weird sort of cyc- cyclical cobweb while watching this movie because I kept thinking of Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette as kind of like a vibe, you know? Well, and also because <laughs> Kirsten Dunst plays, plays Mary Davies, Mary Davies mm. cats me mm-hmm. out. And, but, I, but in terms of a comparison, like I kept thinking, I kept in my brain comparing the performance to Kirsten Dunst in Marie Antoinette and then thought it was interesting that you, right. know, you have to wonder. Um, I have not seen the Norma Shearer Marie Antoinette, but it, it, I have to wonder if Davies would have imbued that character with the same kind of thing that Kirsten mm-hmm. Dunst ultimately imbues it with. You think they would have been many. dancing to like eighties pop? Yeah, and stuff of course, from that? of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but just the th- kind of the stuff that she's doing in this movie, like breaking through the the the, the stuffiness of it all with with yeah. these sort of uh, whimsical comedic well, bits. The other point, the thing I kept thinking about with when Knighthood was in Flowers, you know, we watched this YouTube rip that like is missing the last 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. But what's so funny about it is the whole story of Mary Tudor and Charles Brandon is literally like, I mean, and this is like, like you know, in the real world too, I think, right? It's like, 
Mary Tudor's like, I don't want to marry this old piece of shit guy. Like, I don't want to do it. And then, and then her brother is like, okay, well, I'm going to kill Charles Brandon. So like, you got to marry this guy. And then, and then Mary Tudor's like, fine, I'll marry the guy. And then she marries him and he dies like five days later. Like, and, then, and then, and then she married Charles Brandon in real life. Like she yeah. married him in real life. And like, so I just find it. You get an hour and 40 minutes into this movie and this like ridiculous wedding happens. Yeah. And that's him. That's for marrying Louis XII. Yeah. And it's like there's 15 minutes left. Yeah. So, what I, so just for context, listener, we, you know, this is, it's not the easiest movie to find. We had found a YouTube link to it, which I guess we, we can throw in the thing if, if you want it, to. It is just note that it is missing like the last 15, 20 minutes. So if you did not know what Dan just mentioned, it literally ends, the clip ends at, at her marrying Louis twelve, so it is. You would think like, oh, bummer. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I and I, Connor, Connor, like texted me or whatever, and was like, oh, did your thing end? Like, and I was like, oh, you know, with these old movies, I just was like, oh, they didn't show. They just ended it like a tragedy. Like, okay, <laughs> but obviously it, it 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 cut out. But um, um, so rest assured that it does have uh, you know, it does have a happy end. Uh, histor- <laughs> historical historical. Pro- One funny thing, um. That Emily, I don't know how many like old review. I was, I have the New York Times subscription, so like they have this incredible archive, mm-hmm. uh, you know, thing. So like, mm-hmm. I always read the old reviews, and I'm always struck when I read the old, because um, this came up with Catherine Hepburn. She played Mary, Queen of Scots, right? Mm-hmm. And like, uh, you know, only you know a few years after in, in Mary, uh, Mary of Scotland, yeah. Mm-hmm, uh, yeah. John John Ford movie, and um, which is that movie's more like what you're talking about, Emily. It's a little bit like stayed, a little bit that's stuffy. How, yeah, that's yeah. how Marie Antoinette is, and right with Norma Shearer very much. Yeah, yeah. So right, no, right, yeah. And so um, what I love though in the old reviews is like they were writing for a very specific person because like if you read the review for the When Nighthood Was in Flower. Um, the writer is like, well, as we all know, Mary Tudor, we all know this, the history of Mary Tudor. So, <laughs> and I'm just like, <laughs> like A.O. Scott writing a review now and be like, as we all know, the story of, you know, Herbert Hoover from 1928. And it's like, no, like many New York Times readers would be like Herbert who, you know, and I just yeah. find it like funny, the difference of, of time in that respect. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, just one thing. I think, I don't know, just talking about Norma Shearer and Marion Davies, it's just so interesting how women of this time, especially women with Howard Hughes, they are helped by these men. And I, and I know that they are made who they are t- partly because of them, but they also put them in such a box that mm-hmm. really does ruin them or like holds them back a lot. And especially Norma Shearer, I would have loved to see Marion Davies in that role because I think Norma Shearer, her favorite role for me is the divorcee. And that's like not, um, it's a modern role and she does it so well. So I don't know, they wanted to project or like put on the image that she was sophisticated and kind of doing all of these, um, period pieces but i think it needed marion davies like in right. this movie to make it more fun and exciting at least for a modern viewer but i don't yeah. know like 
it's sad to me to watch it, but it's interesting to think about. Well, and you're and you're right because Marion Davies, you know, when Hearst, I mean, this is years later in the fifties, but when Hearst dies, she gets like railroaded by everybody, right? And mm-hmm. like even even before that, even but especially after he passes. All of his sons are basically like, fuck you, right? They like, mm-hmm. after spending their lives with her to some degree, you know, calling her Daisy, all this stuff, you know, like being, you know, mm-hmm. San Simeon, the whole thing. They just turn their backs on her. And the industry, of course, after the fallout, you know, because basically we'll talk about with Kane and Mabel once, once Hearst and Cosmopolitan gets to WB, Warner Brothers, it's, it's flop. It's Flopzilla. And Which it's is like, a direct result, we should say, of the Marie Antoinette thing. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And, and, it and just Citizen put, Kane, at the, or that's before Citizen Kane. But yeah, yeah, so and Citizen Kane is like the cherry on top. Right? Yeah. She, she basically retires after Ever Since Eve, which, I mean, go read the New York Times review of Ever Since Eve. <laughs> it is a, I mean, it is a, like... It is a massacre. It, like the guy's like, I have his name. I, it's, I think it's Frank. New, I believe his name's Frank Nugent. He's like, he, he goes, well, this is this is a story told so many times. It's as old as Eve. You're like, oh, like it's just, it's like <laughs> he's just burn, tearing Frank, it apart. Sick yeah. burn. Frank was just out, had the knives out. But um, but anyway, yeah, you're totally right. The point is like Davies for all of her ingenuity and her spirit and her energy and her comedy is ultimately in this box by this rich white guy who she feels compelled to save or be his, you know, shoulder in so many respects. And um, it really becomes the downfall of her, not just her career. Cause I think the movies ended up being secondary to her to some degree, mm-hmm. but then after he kind of becomes lesser and ultimately passes, it's a sad end for her, which I just think is such a tough. Yeah, it's 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 emblematic of the time, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and it's really not that long ago when you think about it. So, yeah. But when knighthood was in flower is an interesting kind of staple in you know early in her career. It's a big introductory hit for her, um, and and you know. Uh, the five years between knighthood and the red mill are packed. So we should quickly say, I mean, Emily, you brought up a couple already, but um, Mm -hmm. the, a big hit for her. And this is basically, so basically she goes little old New York there with um, Sydney Alcott movie there with mayor at that point. Mm -hmm. And then Xander, the great is like a miss, but then in 1925 lights of old Broadway, is like a monster hit, right? It's like, and that's MGM, that's Cosmopolitan, that's Mary Davies, that, her new home, the whole deal. She has this insane salary as compared to other people. She gets $500 a week and like thousands for like as a year. So she's like getting a like a weekly stipend plus like a very healthy salary. So like Hearst is really treating her right in that respect. But so anyway, Lights of Old Broadway, and then there's a little bit of a dip with Beverly of Gross Stark, which Sidney Franklin directed, who's kind of an interesting guy, like famously like a nice director, which is rare. It's like, oh no, Sidney Franklin like treated the actresses okay. You're like, okay, well, that's nice. <laughs> and um, so the Red Mill, 27, she plays Tina. It's based on an operetta from the early 1900s. King Vidor, also famously kind, produced mm-hmm. it. 
And it was directed by a guy named William Goodrich, who really was a guy named Fatty Arbuckle. And Connor was telling me earlier, he you didn't know much about the Fatty I knew, Arbuckle like, at I all. I knew that there was like scandal or whatever. And so this whole thing was like due to me. And I was just like aghast. I mean, in the best way, I was like, this is insane, mm-hmm. right? The whole Also, thing. also a part, not to shout out Perry Mason again, but I was saying to Connor, in the first episode of that show, there's like a indirect reference to a Fatty Arbuckle situation in that show that show is it's just funny it's like these old hollywood things whether it's like ryan murphy doing hollywood which whatever but like there are these different versions that are weirdly prevalent now which i think is kind of exciting but um anyway connor why don't you tell us about that yeah you know i'm gonna give you the quick quick version right because we're talking we're here to talk about davies but this was so fatty arbuckle ultimately had to assume a pseudonym to keep working because his his father's name is william goodrich yeah so there are are two stories to that one is oh really yeah yeah. and then the other which is maybe more of like an apocryphal thing um is that after all these scandals um buster keaton kind of mentioned to him in a punny way like oh you should change your name to will be good mm-hmm. and, oh. and and arbuckle was like well that's a little too on the nose so why don't i go by <laughs> william goodrich right um that's that a good story keaton himself had had gone on to continue to say that up through like interviews he would do in the 1960s so like and keaton keaton really was like was a olive branch for Arbuckle yeah. in the yeah. 20s. And, yeah. I mean, yeah. and if, uh, all kind of, I mean, him, him, Charlie Chaplin, they all kind of went to bat for him when all this stuff was happening. Like, oh, no, he's a nice guy. Basically, he was um, he was implicated in the death of Virginia Rapp, which is, this right. is kind of the big thing. And, um, and rape the, of her. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And so there, the whole sort of controversy swirled around it as to whether or not she, like, that, you know, it, he had actually raped her because according to some people, she had lied about that kind of thing in the past. And it's so this whole gross thing ensued. Ultimately, uh, the first degree murder charge against him got taken down to manslaughter. Um, and there were a series of three trials after that concerning kind of just all of this. Uh, this is on top of just a number of other scandals that he was involved in at the time. And because of it, as we mentioned, he had to assume the pseudonym when he had started directing um, of William Goodrich. Right. And Hearst, it's kind of funny because it's like Hearst sort of played a role on both sides of this whole thing where as the stuff was happening, um, as the stuff was happening, would, you know, as Hearst and his media operation was wont to do, would just report it salaciously and and kind of drum up all of the uh, all of the muck and controversy of it all, and then of course you know get, gives him a job, <laughs> uh, gives him a job as mm. as something like the Red Mill comes along, um, which you know Dan mentioned is uh, is also sort of produced by Cosmopolitan as most of Davies' films were. Um, and I will say, all that aside, I think this movie's pretty funny. Well, I'll say this. I mean, this is my favorite of the three. I really enjoyed the Red Mill. I thought it was Mm -hmm. very funny, very quick, very like, I mean, it's one of those things. I'm one of these people like it's based on an operetta and you're like, yeah, like it's like, that's exactly the type of shit I love with these old movies. Like, you know, I'm a big like, give me every version of Jane Eyre. Give me every version of like I'm just I'm like I, I I totally I cop to that. Like I'm a big 
lover of like all that stuff. Like the minute when knighthood starts and I realize it's about Mary Tudor, I'm like, let's do this. Love it. You know? So, yeah. so the red mill really works for me. Emily, what did you, what, I mean, we can set up a little bit of what's about, but why don't you tell us kind of what you thought about it uh, as we do that? I, um, never heard of it. I just watched it this morning. Um, and I loved it so much. I feel like I, it was great to watch after Mank because I feel like the personality that she has in this movie just matches so much with totally. her performance. And I hadn't really, I'd seen it a little bit in some other movies, um, but this one really it just felt so full to me. Um, and she's so funny um, and it's adorable, like an adorable romance. Um, yeah, I really, I felt just like, it was entertaining. It was sweet. It was everything that I really look for in silent movies. Um, and so I really loved it, but I had no idea that it was directed by him until I looked up and, um, I had forgotten that he continued to work. I, I knew a little bit of that after I think he was acquitted or something, but I had never actually known of any of the movies. And I, frankly, I hadn't watched much by Fatty Arbuckle, but I did in preparation for this episode, I ended up watching a few of the shorter films, which are on, some of them are on prime, you know, terrible rips, but you can Mm -hmm. watch them, you know, they're 12 minute things. It's like Fatty joins the force, you know, like, uh, you know, stuff like that. It's, you know, and he's, I mean, this is just for the listeners. I mean, it's, this is Chris Farley a hundred years earlier. I mean, (laughs) it's literally like his whole bit was he's fat. Right. Mm-hmm. But he's like, but he amazingly, never played into it kind of as much as you might think. Well, but kind of like, kind of like Farley, like, Far- like Farley, there's plenty of fat stuff, obviously in it, I guess. But the jokes that are iconic are not unlike Arbuckle, where it's like he was incredibly agile. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, so it's almost this disassociation you know what i mean like the physicality of his performance you're seeing a big guy and you're like okay and it's like then you get him doing these kind of ballerina moves to some degree and it's inherently comical right because it's Mm. incredible and it's funny but it's also fascinating and and um you know a lot of self-deprecating humor maybe not about his weight necessarily but just about his whole almost place in the world or whatever Mm -hmm. and um and then yeah i mean look the sad thing with that dude is he makes the Red Mill. It's a modest success. He makes um, a movie with Keaton, I believe, right? Or something like that, like the same year. He like directs, let me just get it right. He makes, oh yeah, Special Delivery. Yeah, yeah, with uh, with um, uh, Eddie Cantor. Sorry, Eddie Cantor, not, mm-hmm. not, uh, not Keaton. But anyway, they're both like modest successes. And only a few years later, the day he signs, this is maybe also apocryphal, but allegedly, the day he signs a contract to make a big studio movie with Warner Brothers, he dies in the sleep of a heart attack. And it's just like, okay, you know, it's just mm-hmm. a tough, you know, and look, I mean, you know, complicated history, whatnot, but but a, but a tough end for, for, uh, for Roscoe Arbuckle. So the Red Mill basically, just to quickly give you the plot, it's kind of a mistaken identity movie. Um, it's essentially Mary Davies plays Tina, who it's set in Holland. You know, they built the whole set in the back lot. It's beautiful set work. We're going to trust like, that the mill is red, I suppose. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> She's basically just like the working girl of this tavern in Holland. And um, this 
dude Willem is like the horrible tavern owner who is like ultimately the villain of the piece. She's got this amazing pet mouse called. Did you catch the name Ignatz? Ignatz. Yeah. Love, love, great mouse work in this. I will say. <laughs> and um, this, this guy called Dennis right comes into town, own more, and yeah, he's Dennis like search, and he's like searching for a wife essentially, and he's a he's a yeah, and he his like valet. <laughs> Who I, I did love, uh, named <laughs> Caesar, who's like great, great. Uh, Snitz Snit Edwards is the great face actor. actor. Yeah, they there's this ice skating race in which through a series of events, uh, Tina meets Dennis, and then uh, Dennis ultimately comes back. Uh, they're about to kiss and they don't kiss, and then Dennis is going to come back to marry somebody else. This woman, Gretchen. Um, Wait, do I have this right? Wait, no. Am I wrong about this? No, well, I'm right, right? No, no, well, so this is where the mistaken identity comes into play because- Yeah, yeah, go ahead. You take it from me. So right near the tavern, there is this woman, Gretchen, who is being kept um, sort of in waiting to marry the governor. The owner, Willem, like you mentioned, uh, is the is sort of helping the burgomaster- arrange the marriage of his daughter to the governor right right and that's who gretchen is right and so that's one thing and gretchen is and this is the only thing i didn't like about it gretchen's like homely but she's like actually beautiful which is very and and this is so common in these movies which is always a little tough like where it's like it's like the way meaner she's all that stuff where it's like i mean the caesar character is like a son of a bitch like that dude (laughs) is just like, he's like he's like you love that girl why don't you kill her she saw it it's like <laughs> right. oh my it's like God. it is like, yikes but it i mean it's funny but it's like you're it's funny in this yeah, kind of way and you're just like oh god this poor gretchen it's like mm-hmm. Lady Boggs. jeez louise but essentially gretchen is actually in love with uh with this captain uh jacob is that what we're gonna yeah, say yeah, yeah 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 um played by carl dane and uh basically once tina realizes this she sort of endeavors to help out the two of them by getting them together meanwhile uh tina so gretchen can get away pretends to be gretchen dennis comes back into town spots tina thinking it's gretchen from her window Decides to climb over there in kind of a wonderful little bit with a ladder that's kind of great. And um, and they have this meet cute and whatever. And Dennis falls for her. Right. Thinking and then he, thinking she's Gretchen, thinking yeah. she's Gretchen. Right. And class learns that Gretchen mm-hmm. is going to be married off to the governor, gets all just crazy and indignant about it. Uh, and the, you know, hilarity ensues. Um it it winds up in a climax that I frankly didn't fully understand. <laughs> uh, so in a sort of right after we're introduced to Dennis, there is sort of this immediate and, and Dennis leaves right with uh, with Tina not having gotten her precious kiss. Uh, we're introduced to the insides of this mill that is allegedly haunted, which comes back in the final act of the film um, as 
Tina who yeah like becomes a full Shirley Jackson novel at the yeah, end. It's, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's it's a little nutty because uh, yeah. it's like because it, the first scene with the mill it's like it's not actually haunted but they think it's haunted so it's played for comedy and then in the end they're like skeletons in there I know and it's like and you're, so you're well, just like, like mannequins but then it gets but then it's like but then it's like taxidermy right and, it's and like, so I, yeah. I was not necessarily admittedly not fully picking all that up where I was like wait so is this mill actually like Willem's torture <laughs> chamber? Like what is happening? Um, but basically because Willem's plans to sort of seemingly, I would imagine climb some kind of ladder via hooking up uh, the burgomaster with the governor, because those plans get foiled as Tina lets Gretchen run away with Jakob and runs away with uh, Dennis. He essentially chases them into the mill and there, I mean, it is an astounding set piece. Um, they they wind up climbing onto the 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 what would you call it? The fan of the mill? What would you call it? Uh, yeah, I don't know. The outside of the mill. The four things that rotate. On that the, on the set piece at the end is yeah, is, you're is, right. is amazing. Unbelievable, and I think man. for basically all of these movies that we're watching, that was something that continually struck me. Right, like you watch Nighthood when when Nighthood was in flower. The sets are amazing. And then you just think about the, you know, the 1920s of it all. And it's, you know, it's incredible to me. Um, but yeah, and then that so it basically wraps itself up in this this comedy action set piece. Um, and yeah, I I don't know if this was my favorite, but I definitely think it it is such a wonderful showcase of her everything she does well, particularly in the the silent era right mm -hmm. and yeah. um and and it's like you said emily uh it, it it's got everything that you could want i think out of a movie like this it moves at a pretty good clip it's 70 minutes long you know like as so it's it's great um but yeah i don't yeah I, I really i really enjoyed this movie and when you know i mean when you know arbuckle directed it the comedy you know, if you watch his stuff, it's all of a piece. You know what I mean? I think it makes a lot of sense. It's like, you know, I think the bit with the, the ironing board is amazing. Where oh, she's yeah, like yeah. trying to assemble an ironing Sears board. Sears Roebuck from Sears Roebuck. Yeah, it's it's so good. Um, yeah, I just I, big 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 recommend on this one. Well, you know, it, it reminds you too. It's like it, you know, I can't help but thinking about modern comps, but like. It's the reason a movie like Elf works, right? Where like they're doing stuff in that movie, you know, he's basically doing a Marion. It's you know what I mean, like mm -hmm. Will, well, Will Ferrell is doing like a Marion Davies thing in that movie, where it's like this innocence with this comedy, but there's an awareness and like, um, is it red? Is it the red mill? I feel like I wrote this down somewhere. Just is she is she winking at the camera a couple of times in the red mill? Am I right about that? I think that's right. I think the red mill, she like, she like breaks the fourth wall. She definitely mugs at the camera a couple of times. Which I liked my, actually. My, like, favorite, I was my cute. favorite close up of her in this movie, because it, it would seemingly, you could almost, you could feel from beyond the grave, maybe Hearst cringing while, while watching it is in the ice skating sequence where she meets Dennis, she falls under the ice and comes out and she's like frosty and caked <laughs> with it. And she's just frozen to the core. And she slowly turns and sees Dennis. And this big smile comes across her face and just breaks these cracks uh, in the uh, in the ice that's on her face. And it's like 
hilarious looking and you could tell that she's like mary davies is loving it and mm -hmm. i can totally feel if you know about the reputation of how hearst wanted her to be seen in these movies he probably fucking hated it uh which made me love it even more kind of mm -hmm. well but what's funny is that her falling in the water they did a lot of takes of that and apparently she like was very not happy about that which i <laughs> which i find yeah i mean of course right who would be happy about that but um yeah i mean it's interesting. So obviously we're going to jump to 36, which is sound, Kane and Mabel. And it's such a different thing, right? It's interesting to talk about that. Like she is one of these artists, or at least for a brief time, who, for her, who makes the transition from silent to sound, obviously huge, huge thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, what did, what do we think about? Like, what do you, Emily, what did, like, it's a weird thing to watch, right? Like, you hear the Brooklyn, which she was obviously self-conscious about, right? It becomes mm. part of her, part of her thing. Mm -hmm. I think it can work, obviously, but it, her performance, like everything about it, definitely changes, and it's certainly interesting to watch. Um, what did, you, how did, what did you think, kind of the in bit, like watching the the silent movies and then kind of revisiting the the sound? Um, I think it's it's clear that you can see that her acting really started in the silent era because even though she says lines and everything, but I think mainly her face does most of the acting still, even when it is sound, um, right. which doesn't mean that it's bad or it looks like it's out of place. Um, I just think it's so much different than I'll think a lot of the performances that we see once sound does come in. Um, but I think she does a great job of, she separates or she separates herself from, you know, Gloria Swanson or some of the other silent actresses who can't really fit into sound in like the pre-code era. And I think she is able to do it. Um, and I do think that's because of her regular personality, her like real life personality. Right. Um, and I like a lot of her sound films more than the silent movie. So I think there's like great stuff in both times. Yeah, no, it's totally right. And it's a shame, obviously she kind of retires. So, yeah. I mean, she's basically 40, right? I mean, mm -hmm. ever since Eve is 37, it's a flop. Like we said, Kane and Mabel, which is our last movie, which we'll talk about now is also a flop. A lot of the criticism, if you read about it is, is the casting of, Clark Gable as a boxer, which I find a little that's, like that's silly to me. That's like I, what I the, I was saying to Connor. The yeah. thing that bothered me about the Gable of it all is in Kane and Mabel. Basically, the idea is he's a prize fighter. She, through happenstance, becomes a Broadway star, but they like lack charisma, like in equal measure, right? To some mm -hmm. degree. And so their people, their agents and managers and whatnot, conspire to construct a false relationship betwixt them so as to generate buzz for the upcoming fight in the up in the current show. It's a good setup. So mm -hmm. it's a it's a it's a good setup, but the idea that Clark Gable isn't charming is a bridge too far for me. I was <laughs> yeah, like, no, I, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was I like, agree. they're just like like he's basically they're basically saying like he's like uh you know I'm trying to think of like he's not Jack Dempsey, right? Like the right. idea is it's like you know, he's like a boring white fighter or whatever, right? And I'm like, yeah, I 
I'll get behind that in 36, that being a plot that every person who goes to the pictures are like, yeah, it's like blah, blah, blah. He's so boring to watch fight. But then it's like there's not enough boxing to sell me on on that element. And he's also the seventh most handsome person who's ever lived. I don't know. You know, so you're like, you go like, okay. And it's like, what's also funny is like, this is two years after Muni on the Bounty where he's playing Fletcher Christian. He's like the hottest guy in the world. And you're like, yeah, I just find it hysterical that like that the, is a, the Border Brothers was like, that's a fair point. Order. And I wonder, I wonder if the criticism of him being cast as a boxer has more to do with just his face like he looks like a dude who's never been punched in the face been punched. right and they do and i will say the credits of the scripts they do like make there's jokes about that yeah. in the movie, mm-hmm. which yeah. I think is at least smart they do i yeah. think i agree i agree with you dan because i think the movie wants him to be wants him to be sort of uh charmless um but i think, I think- go ahead I just think they they wanted it to be more of like Cary Grant in his screwball comedies where, yes, he's gorgeous, but he has a silly, like just different attitude in those yeah. characters. And so you kind of you are aware that, yes, this is Cary Grant and who wouldn't be in love with him, but kind of buy into that personality. And that, Clark Gable really can't. Do no, that. no, no. That's that's well, exactly what it, I was going to say, because it's yeah. like. You look at something, and we just mentioned this on our last episode, but you look at something like Notorious, right? And Notorious is amazing to watch because Cary Grant is like the anti-Cary Grant in it, right? Mm. And it's an amazing performance, kind of uh, mostly because of that. And I don't, I don't want to say Gable could never do that. It's just in this movie, in this movie, mm-hmm. that is well, what this movie wants him to do, and he can't do yeah. it. Which like and you, doesn't... Yeah. I still enjoyed this movie a lot, mm-hmm. actually, because because he breaks through it and is still Clark Gable and is still charming and funny. And he's got like zingers for yeah. days that that land really mm-hmm. well. Um, both of them do. And I think they both have really good chemistry. Mm-hmm. I must say, I envy you taking Miss O'Dare to supper every evening. Well, if that makes you envious, I know a guy in the poultry business would make you positively jealous. He feeds 2000 clucks every night. Are you going to start that cluck business again? If you are, you're not going to get away with it this time, whether I'm a singer or not. You're not. Take the word of a guy who's listened to you 20 nights in a row. Come on. Oh. All right, put it on, put it on. Get ready to meet the autograph hounds. All right. Yeah. How do I look? Like a beaver about to go to work on a tree. He is that that movie I mentioned earlier. Um, uh... Peggy of the Circus or Polly of the Circus, sorry, mm-hmm. but Polly Polly of the Circus is a little bit more in line with maybe what they wanted out of them with this because he in that movie, I mean, he's a priest, so he's like mm. sort of charming, but way more like well, subdued. and also like it has me thinking about Claudette Colbert in It Happened One Night where. Gable's great in it, but like Colbert is carrying the energy, right? Like he he is he is totally in her world reacting to like her whole thing. And I feel like it's a great place for him to be in in that movie. Iconic, of course, in every way, but like I find it interesting where yeah, and for whatever reason in this one, because I agree, I enjoyed Kane and Mabel as well. Um Though I think that um, Mary Davies is carrying it, you know, I think yeah, like yeah, every yeah. every moment that she's in, 
from the beginning when she's the waitress and like that mm-hmm. whole bit i like the i like that scene with um, that opening i was like oh maybe this is the best movie because yeah. like she's like she takes <laughs> the eggs off the one guy's thing and brings it to the yeah, oh and Ro- God, roscoe carnes who plays the press agent that that I ultimately brings them together it's a great performance by him he's super funny um, where he's like a journalist who just lost his job yeah <laughs> and, then she, and she's like oh you can go to public relations he's like public relations yeah. oh mayor right. i want to clean up this it's like the same yeah <laughs> it's no so he's good. it's a great i mean everybody's i i basically liked almost every part of this movie it kind of really worked for me like all the performances are really good i think uh and to your point emily i agree with her i her silent work is great and you could see why she was a, a silent star but i to me i think sound almost in a uh in a happily ironic way because she by by some accounts was terrified when you know she saw some of the early jolson talkies and things like that and she was Mm -hmm. like oh my god i'm you know probably like a lot of them were like well they make they make they make reference to that mank yeah i I don't know if we mentioned her stutter but it's something that she that's that she suffered with and you'd never know i mean you watch this i didn't know you'd never know well and and apparently and apparently it was like, and this is what I was fascinated about. Kirsten Dunst played her. Uh, obviously, like we said Amanda Seyfried played her. Like, I'm surprised nobody's ever tried to do the stammer in portraying her because let, apparently, reading this book at least, it, like in social and like situations, it still was there, right? Yeah. Like, obviously, you're seeing a movie, there are takes, what have you. Mm-hmm. It's also like, surprising that, and I, I, I did recently rewatch Citizen Kane and I couldn't detect this, but maybe I missed something. I don't even think that's something they capitalize on in Kane, which is, will, let me, which is let me surprising say one, given, yeah. given that movie's treatment mm-hmm. of, of her. I will say the one thing about Kane rewatching it, the Hearst thing, it's so clear. I I tend to a little believe Mank and Wells in the in and Bogdanovich, you know, who, you know, through them or whatever. The more you read about Davies, I I get it's I get it is Davies to some degree. I get that and it's Hearst and I, I understand. But like it really isn't her. Like like when you watch the movie, you're like, I mean, it's I don't know. What do you what do you think, Emily? I think that it goes with what people thought of her at this time. Like they didn't think she was talented, but she actually sure. really was. And they didn't take her seriously, and she was always kind of the side um person in his life but yeah the more you read about it it doesn't make any sense and so I think that's why it's so sad that people then took it that way because it wasn't at all what she was yeah and like and it's to the point like even to the point we were like early in December we were talking the three of us and we were talking about the cat's meow and quickly, you know, the cat's meow Bogdanovich basically in 0102 made a movie called the cat's meow. That's based. It's a fictionalized account of the ins- incident, which was in 1924, the producer Thomas Ince, who is the father of the Western. Um, he was on Hearst's boat with about 12 other people, allegedly Charlie Chaplin, allegedly Luella Parsons, definitely Marion Davies, all, all these other people. Um, what's her name? Livingston, who is an actress mm. who allegedly was having an affair with Thomas Ince. Anyway, Ince dies days after coming back off the boat. And it's a mysterious death. It's like 
he drank and he had ulcers and that's why he died. But if you read about what happened when the boat came into port, all of Hearst's people took him to the hospital, but they didn't take him to the hospital. They took him to the house and the newspapers reported something. There was reports of a gunshot wound. There, no, there was no gunshot wound. Da, 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 da. And basically the myth that may or may not be true, the Christopher walking on the boat of it all <laughs> uh, is that, um, <laughs> and this is what happens in the cat's meow spoilers, is essentially that um, Hearst shot Ince and it was a grand cover-up. And what the way that the Bogdanovich gets to that in, in the, in the um, movie is basically through his alleged jealousy not even alleged. I mean, this was a little real was there was a flirtation slash maybe a relationship betwixt Charlie Chaplin and Mary Davies in real life. So in the movie, Eddie Izzard plays Charlie Chaplin, which I don't love that casting. I like, <laughs> forgot how much I was like rewatching. I was like, oh yeah, that's not great. But like, I love Eddie Izzard. I don't know. But, um, but uh, in the movie, it's like Davies and Chaplin are about to get it on and Hearst is like, I am going to kill this guy. And mm -hmm. through mistaken identity, he kills Ence is what happens. And Ence is played by Carrie Elwes, who is amazing in that movie, actually. And it's a great Bogdanovich little movie. It's not a great movie, but it's like a fun old fashioned movie. If you like Bogdanovich is definitely kind of, you know, very much one of his films. But what's funny, Emily, to your point about this idea about Kirsten, uh, about Mary Davies, I had seen Cat's Meow when it came out. And I remembered Dunst playing Davies like an idiot mm -hmm. because of my like thought of how people thought of Davies. But rewatching it, that's not she plays it very not unlike Seyfried. It's like kind of, you Lovely. know, self, yeah, self-deprecating, but very aware and very with it and smart and like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe plays the dumb blonde, quote unquote, like for for the masses but is actually, you know, as smarter than anybody else, right? And and, and, mm -hmm. and, I, and it almost made me feel bad. I was like, God, I'm part of the problem. Like you like <laughs> let these pervasive things, the Susan Alexander of it all, you let it really infect your opinions. And it's like- It's a weird, if, it's a weird- It's weird. Hurstian thing, right? Mm. Where like, it's like, oh, it doesn't exist, but if we believe it exists, then it exists. And then it actually has an effect. And yeah. it's a it's a really strange, strange tragic well, and, thing, and, and which look, is sort great... of at the core too of, uh, well, yeah. of Cain and Mabel, right? It's like, that's literally, mm -hmm. it's all, Cain and Mabel is all Hearst ethos, right? It's a group mm -hmm. of people being like, Oh, these people thing, have yeah. terrible careers, so let's just pretend they have good careers while they're connected to each other, and then they'll have good careers. Yeah. Yeah, look, that's, I mean, it's funny because it's so much of er that earlier entertainment, which I think is funny. It's like, you know, you go back to a comedy of errors with Shakespeare, right? It's like mistaken identity and, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, lie your way into the party or whatever. But like, but um, yeah, ultimately the thing with Kane that's so funny is, you know, Hearst's legacy now is came, which I think Hearst probably knew in his heart and why, why he hated it so much to some degree, because that movie is his legacy, which of course is the last thing he wanted. And so it makes, if for, look, if for no other reason, one thing I love about Mank is like, hopefully Seyfried gets nominated and hopefully mm -hmm. it is a benchmark in culture that allows us to remember 
Davies in a different way. You know what I mean? And, you know, and, and I like that Davies does the act, or I like that Seyfried does the accent because Dunst avoids it, which is mm-hmm. probably smart to some degree. But Davies does it and she does a great job. Or, sorry. Uh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. She yeah. uh, Seyfried does, does it. it yeah. She does a great job. Yeah. So I feel like I was listening to an interview she did about this movie. And I think a lot of people look at Amanda the same kind of way. They think she was in Mean Girls oh and Jennifer's God, Body and that she's not talented. But I think a lot of people forget she was in Les Mis and she did a lot of hard work for that. And this movie, it's just weird that people are saying like, this is now finally like the role that she gets to prove that what she does is good. And she's always been good. Yeah, I, think. I mean, she was in First Reformed two years ago mm-hmm. and she was fantastic in it, you know? Yeah. 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 So it's, no, it's kind of meta. You're totally right. It's very meta. You're, I didn't even think about that. You're totally right. Yeah, because she plays the like dumb blonde in Mean Girls, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, wow. And it's like, it's funny how, yeah. I Which mean, is, I mean, we look, should note, an amazing comedic performance. No, I know. That's I mean, great. Look, we, we, look, you talk about Keanu Reeves that comes up. Bradley Cooper has a great like late night thing where he talks about how like, he played Will Tippett in Alias and he couldn't get other roles because people thought he was too nice. And then he played like three dickheads in a row, Wedding Crashers, whatever. And then he couldn't get cast as Will Tippett in roles because everybody thought he was a dick. He had a hangover, obviously, being a big one. And like, it's just part of the thing, even to this day, when everybody's doing a million things and they're going on hot ones and they're going on the whatever. And they're, but even still, if you, if you hit it big with a role, it will, it can really, overshadow your whatever your other predilections to some degree it's funny which is so interesting because i think a lot of what studying old hollywood is is kind of separating the persona that people are are made to believe in the roles that they're put into from Mm -hmm. like the actual person but it's really not i mean it's not as overt in the advertising and, and publicity but it still is very a part of um hollywood and acting today well and even we were like look stuff repeats itself obviously that's nothing new Mm -hmm. but even before we started recording like hearst running cosmopolitan pictures it's like amazon prime baby like we were talking about like (laughs) bezos amazon prime right you know sarandos netflix like and it you know it's it's the kind of people making content yeah that stuff winds up on screen maybe obviously less so with the amazon prime of of it all today but like with with like this movie, for instance, uh, famously, you know, the uh, Marion Davies and who I mean, I have to wonder if this is like a Marion Davies thing or a Hearst thing, like who actually suggested this. But when they went to go shoot it on shoot it on the Warner Brothers lot, the stages were the standard like 45 feet tall or whatever. And oh, yes, basically, I read this, yeah. basically, according to any accounts that I was able to find, Davies was like, oh, it's too small. Like they need to be larger. And so they literally had to like jack up the whole stage to make it taller by I think about like another 35 feet. And oh, what wow. I what I think is kind of crazy about it, because that that is something that just feels insane. And why would you ever do it and whatever? <laughs> and I can agree with that. But there are moments in this movie, not unlike I mentioned with Red Mill or When Nighthood Was in Flower. There's particularly this one set piece that's supposed to be kind of heavenly and angelic and there are clouds and whatever. And there's this shot that kind of cranes out and reveals one tier of the stage after the other. And it's gigantic 
and it like works like you're just like oh th- yeah this is insane and it is kind of breathtaking to look at so it is one of those things that you kind of the the production person in me can totally think about something like that and be like that sounds like a nightmare and it seems like the worst thing mm-hmm. anybody's ever inflicted upon a crew but on the mm-hmm. other hand you see what winds up on screen and you're like yeah i don't know maybe they were right like <laughs> rewatching um, it i it made me wonder like if busby berkeley had any hand on in this because this was warner brothers so they made all of his musicals there and this that like the musical um scenes felt so like they were playing off of that especially sure. i think this movie was kind of after the boom of those but it definitely felt like pulling off of that imagery which i love well yeah i mean lloyd bacon and busby berkeley were like you know, thickest thieves, right? And they make 42nd Street together, right? Mm-hmm. So so I would not be surprised if some of that sensibility is here, obviously, with those amazing set pieces. And Bobby Connolly, if you read the Times Review, gets a lot of credit for that, those sequences, because he mm-hmm. was kind of the stage director, choreograph, uh, choreographer. So, and I believe Connolly worked with Berkeley. So it's mm. that team is certainly here in some respects. So mm-hmm. I think you're right. And it's one of those things I do think is funny. It's like, you see this in modern movies as well. Those set pieces, like you could take them out of the movie and it wouldn't change anything no, about totally. the movie. But, but they're just like in there just because like give the people what they want. Yeah, mm-hmm. like, this, like, and like, I think I think it mostly works. Like I, I, um, <laughs> I, I, the sequence where they do like the carnival wax museum thing, they like built a full on carousel for that, which I believe wound up at San Simeon. Like there's like, like a Nero, Nero with the fiddle. I'm no, like, wow, that, they're really, no, like, what I loved in that sequence though, which actually like elicited a laugh from me was the, the, uh, oh, it's like the peace treaty or whatever. And then all the dudes shoot, shoot each, each other. At each other. Yeah. I, I enjoyed that. Um, now is but, that a, re- that's a got that's a world war one reference. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, so it's got all these cute little jokes and like, uh, you know, I don't know. I think Gable and Davies do have really good chemistry. And I think mm-hmm. it really, like I said, it. I think movies like this, it really unlocks her, right? Like, I think it really just kind of puts it all out there for for the world to see. I think even maybe unknowingly, retrospectively for us to look back at and be like, oh, no, yeah, like she really had it. Like, at, mm-hmm. well, it's as crazy much as anybody Gable- else. You know, and you think we're talking about she's done a year after this. Gable works till the 60s, right? He dies basically the misfits, right? It's like Mm -hmm. that's decades, right? I mean, that's like the difference of decades. So it's like, you know, Gable's probably less famous than Davies or like equal when they make Cain and Mabel. It's Mm -hmm. right, Right. way, way more newly famous and like. Mm In the in the history of Hollywood, it's like not even close, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Gable. I mean, look, he's in the, the biggest movie ever, right? Obviously, so yeah. that's okay. <laughs> but but like, you know, I it's crazy if you told someone in like twenty eight that Mary Davies would basically be totally forgotten if not for this random movie, and Clark Gable is still regarded by so many as you know one of the icons, rightfully so. Mm-hmm. That's just history, man. It's just so crazy how that works. You know what I mean? And look, also brings it back to the the sexism and the ages mm-hmm. of it all as well. But yeah. but um, yeah, man, Marion Davies. I just th- I'll tell you what. This is one of my favorite ones to do research for because I didn't know and I didn't know enough about her. And you're listening to the book and watching the movies. You know, 
rewatching Beauty's Worth, watching the three recovered, even watching Ever Since Eve, which like I said, it wasn't great. Robert Mon- here's the thing. Robert Montgomery is in Ever Since Eve. And we covered another one of his movies on one of our last episodes. And I just, I just gotta be honest. I just don't think I like Robert Montgomery. I just don't <laughs> think I like him. I you know, I don't like his face. I don't like his voice. I, I think that has a lot to do with it. Like Bob Montgomery's kin, if you're listening, I apologize. I just he's not for me i think i don't I think he's as like good looking or charming as a lot of other leading men at the time like yeah. sometimes i do watch it and i'm like i don't really get it but then other times i do i don't know like him and davies and like davies is just like wiping the floor with them i don't know <laughs> but anyway what are our last i guess final thoughts on marion davies as we wrap up here emily what do you think um I, Any, I anything mean, you'd recommend, I guess, too, just, you know, other if people want to watch other stuff by her. You know? Yeah, I think Going Hollywood is a great one just because it's, it's similar to Mank in that it um, kind of breaks down Hollywood, especially at the time. I always love watching movies that are about movies at that era because, sure. yeah, they like examine it in such a weird way where they're like towing the line that they don't want to give themselves away, but at the same time kind of make fun of it um and she's really great in that and um show people is always is very good um and blondie of the follies is really good i i that's my favorite role of hers because it's kind of the working class girl who comes up and um i think she's funny and emotional um in that one but those are ones i would recommend it's her it's her funny girl One day we're going to do Barbara on this podcast. Oh, I can't. It'll I, happen. I, I, that will be a day. We'll rem- I love, I can't wait for that day. <laughs> we'll talk about, talk about the main event. Anyway, um, Connor, what about you, Marianne? What do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just going to echo you, Dan. It's, it's, I love doing this stuff because it's, you know, not always something that I know enough about. And then you, you dive in and you just find out all this fascinating shit and you really, um, I do want a quick shout out, um, sort of kind of, I guess, as part of this whole reappraisal that I think has happened in the film Twitterverse, uh, because of Mank, um, Audrey Fox wrote a great piece for uh, Crooked Marquee called Beyond Citizen Kane, getting to know the real Marion Davies. It's a good, c- quick read, little, just a little capsule on kind of everything we just talked about in terms of why she deserves to be reappraised uh, and 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 how this all came to be. Um, oh, so and I, you just reminded me with the Mank element, I would encourage people to read both the Pauline Kale New Yorker piece. Um, raising Kane, which a lot of Mank takes from, like I think Jack Fincher loved that Pauline Kale piece, I think, and a lot of Mank, there's a lot of that in that, um, which is a hated piece by a lot of people because a lot of it's maybe not true and that's why i would offer you should also read the year later 71 she wrote that 72 Bogdanovich wrote the Kane mutiny, which is his like rebuttal to Kale. And he's like, well, I know Orson Welles. Let me tell you, Pauline, <laughs> you don't know what you're talking about, which it uh, that piece kind of comes across shitty as well, if I'm being honest. But 
read them both. It's interesting. It kind of gives you a good play setting for Mank. It's a lot of words, but it's well worth the time. Just it, I'll link to both in the article and as well. As fun the fact, Crook I have not Marquee. watched it, so I can't speak to its quality, but it's a thing that exists, and it's exactly the kind of thing we love talking about on this podcast. There is an ABC TV movie from 1985 called The Hearst and Davies Affair. With Virginia. Have you seen it, Emily? No, it? I was watching a documentary and they had the actress Virginia from Madsen. It. Yeah. Is yeah. it Robert Mitchum in it? Is yeah, it the Mitchum, one? Yeah. Mitchum plays Hearst. Madsen plays Davies. I have wow, not Virginia, seen it. That, that's like the Dune. That's like Dune Madsen. That's yeah. like and young, uh, young Madsen. So whatever, seek it out, uh, I guess, because it's just a while. I, I watched like a little bit of it. Uh, also a fun thing I would mention, I did find on YouTube, maybe we can link to it. Uh, an episode from 1960 of Hedda Hopper's Hollywood, which is just fun for a lot of different reasons, right? Just a timepiece. You see a lot of old faces and that kind of thing, uh, which is sort of fun. And Davies pops up in this thing at about like the 25 minute mark, all obviously canned and staged and whatever. So none of it, none of it feels particularly natural or candid, but it is just fun to watch. Oh, and Jennifer Tilly plays the Willow Parsons in the Cats Meow. And I, I did, I had like really liked her. That <laughs> mm-hmm, me too. Yeah. <laughs> And for those who don't know, Luella Parsons was a Hollywood gossip columnist who was in the pocket of Hearst, right? Wrote for Hearst's papers and Hedda Hopper didn't. So they like were competing forces of Hollywood gossip, which like is kind of portrayed in um, Hail Caesar. If you've seen the Coen Brothers movies, yeah. right? A little bit like they're, tw- they're the Tilda Swinton characters. There's right? also you know? that nice joke, the nice sort of throwaway joke in Mank. Where he's sitting down. Luella! Yeah, Luella! Hedda! Well, you know what I kept thinking? The the weirdest line, I think the weirdest line delivery in that movie, which people will never shut up about the weird line deliveries, and the old man is 20 years older. uh, What I find hysterical about the old man is 20 years older thing is like, how many times it's gone the other way right where it's like women play young it's like okay get over mm-hmm. yourself but fine but so when oldman oldman goes uh they accuse him of writing susan alexander as uh mary davies and he goes it's not her he like delivers <laughs> it like that it's the weirdest thing um but one other thing i was gonna say and i know like people like matt singer and stuff have written about this obviously rko 281 with the HBO movie from 1999, written by John Logan, the great John Logan, um, where Liev Schreier plays right. Orson Welles. That's a good movie. It's a short movie. Um, there's a lot. Look, there's a lot to dig into. Like, if you go down this rabbit hole, it's really exciting. I mean, we mentioned, mm-hmm. like, the Sister Amy thing, Fatty Arbuckle, the Ince thing, you know, Olive Thomas. Like, you really get into you get into these Hollywood scandals and it really is a very kind of a cool, dark, you know, pre Hayes code. Will Hayes is sharpening his knives <laughs> so that by, by the thirties, nobody can do anything without it becomes all Leo McCary winks and nods, uh, which, Hey, I love that too, but you know, mm-hmm. and, um, it's exciting. I love this stuff. This, this is what I wanted it to be. It's just talking about this stuff. Emily, where can people, you know, find you, find your work? Tell us, tell us where you're at. Um, I'm on Twitter, Emily KUV underscore. Um, and then everything is on Film School Rejects. Uh, my column Beyond the Classics is on there. Um, and I'm going to have a pretty cool interview this week, I think. Uh, so people can walk out, watch out for that one. 
Yeah, so it's so we're recording this January, so like the uh, weekend of the 16th. So if you're listening, this will be out in a week or so, the end of January. So that interview will be out. So seek that yeah. out. Yeah. That's cool. Dan, yeah, where yeah. can you, people find you? I'm going to tell you right now. Uh, at DJ Mecca is my Twitter handle. And I write for the film stage, as you know. I co-founded it, as a matter of fact. Can you believe it? Um, I did an interview with uh, Diane Lane for Let Him Go, which is now out on physical media. That, If you're listening, that's out. So you can read that on the film stage. Love her, Diane Lane. The best. Wish I could have talked to her for another hour. She was awesome and um she's in a movie called the cotton club on just as recommending older things mm. the cotton club encore Great. is on amazon prime and is so good yeah it's like, very good we'll take this good flawed movie and we'll add in all the other better stuff and it's really good now yeah so, <laughs> very uh, good. definitely watch that but yeah that's what that's where you can find me and uh you know as always, yeah. uh, we leave it to Connor to finish this out. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Scruffy Looking. Uh, you can occasionally find me on the film stage. I just reviewed The Marksman uh, as of this recording. A spoiler alert, it's not very good. Uh, also, David fin- David Fincher's The Marksman? Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. The Liam Neeson joint directed by David Fincher, The Marksman. No, uh, it's, yeah, it's not very good, but uh, you know, check it out if you want. And uh, you can find this podcast on Twitter and Facebook at TFS B-Side. Like Dan mentioned at the top, we did just sort of introduce a new series of episodes we're going to be sprinkling in every once in a while called The Final Frame, uh, which we kicked off with the final film of Alfred Hitchcock, which is uh, Family Plot. So that's, you know, that episode is out there for you to listen to if you have not and let me before you end. I meant to do this earlier. Our good friend, who's been on the show, Catherine Clark Gray, she is a supporting producer for this new podcast called Spark and Fire, which is like the Wait What Network. It puts it out, and it's like they talk to these creatives about like the spark of their idea and like what happened. And it's like Susan Orlean talks about the Orchid Thief and then adaptation, and that's like the best shit I've ever heard. I love it. It's a great interview, and. Um, and they talked to Chip Kidd, who did the book cover for Jurassic Park and how that happened. And then I'm trying to think, oh, Kemp Powers, who wrote One Night in Miami and co-directed uh, Soul, which is that one. He's been everywhere, so you've probably seen some stuff about him. But like, the, but great episodes. So just check it out. Give it a listen. It's like Catherine, uh, Katie, Catherine Clark Gray. She, we love her. She does great podcast work. Um, she's been doing stuff for my little story podcast show fathom uh the one in january that's out right now if you're listening second opinion she wrote and performs it she's the best and like the i just love this new podcast i just want to shout it out so spark and fire is the name and uh and yeah that's that's about it for the uh, the housekeeping if you like what you've heard please uh rate review and subscribe wherever you uh wherever you listen emily thank you so much for taking the time yeah uh, we'll definitely have you back it was great to have you. you yeah i'd love to be back and um and i'll just i'll finish with this a very simple on nerds <laughs> You would like a tenor voice, why don't you give our drops a try? And now, who have we here? I'm Julius Caesar, dear. Oh, do you fancy meeting you again at Coney Island?